Good morning. Look what the time change drug in. Man. I know. It's awesome. Good to see you guys here. I'm glad you're here. If you're visiting with us this morning and I haven't had a chance to, to meet you, my name is Jason Williams. I have the honor of serving as lead pastor here at Solid Rock. And um, before you leave today, I would love to, to get to know you and, and hear how God led you to our church. Um, so this is the first Sunday of the month, which again, if you're visiting with us, uh, this is a Sunday where we take communion together um, as a church family. Today we're doing it a little bit different. We're doing it after the sermon instead of before. So if you're wondering where it's at, that's where it's at. So on first Sundays we take communion together. We typically give the band the day off. We just strip it down to just vocals and guitars and really allow communion to be um, essentially the exclamation point on our worship. And that's what we're going to do uh, this morning. Uh, that'll be here in just a little bit. We're continuing in our Everyday Gospel series. I was thinking about uh, the sermon this week with a, with a little bit of apprehension um, and, and, in a personal way. So we, as a church, are seeing God move in the lives of people all over the place, right? So we talk about that often. He's redeeming, he's reconciling, he's restoring, he's saving, he's doing this all this amazing work here at Solid Rock Church. But when when God works in our lives or in a church, um, it, it's not like, you know, for lack of better metaphors, going to like um, to get a massage where you just lay on the table and he does all the work. When he works in our lives, he calls us to participate in that work. And oftentimes when God is working most powerfully in the lives of his people, he's also calling them to do really hard things. And so here's what I mean by that. When God works in our lives, what he calls us to do is to walk by faith. And faith can be a really challenging and hard thing. We just sing about the victory of Jesus over death and over the grave and his resurrection. And, and we believe that as Christians, that he rose from the dead. We believe that by faith. None of us were there, right? We didn't see it. We believe it by faith. And we believe in a day where he will return, where he will gather before himself the nations where he will look at sin and death and say these final words, you are done. And we believe that by faith. But believing those two things isn't incredibly difficult. But what Jesus says is if you believe those things, if you're going to come after me, then, then here's what I'm going to call you to do, to take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and come follow me. And so walking by faith on Monday can be quite challenging. This sermon series is entitled The Everyday Gospel. We're looking at how the gospel, this beautiful gospel message that Jesus died for our sins, resurrected from the grave, and will return to gather the nations before himself, how that applies to everyday situations. We've looked at marriage and parenting and, and work and possessions and all these different areas. And today what we're going to be talking about is something that's incredibly difficult, forgiveness. Now, not difficult to receive. We all want it. It's not difficult to ask for for most of us, but when it comes to giving it out, that's where it becomes difficult. Well, last week in this sermon series, we started working through the Lord's Prayer, and we made it through the first few verses, and we stopped short of these words, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And the way Jesus is teaching us to pray seems to uh, imply that those who have received forgiveness are expected to do what? To forgive, to give out, to bend out towards others what God has so generously poured out in our lives. We're going to Matthew 18 today. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Matthew 18. And the first part of Matthew 18, um, 
at least the section we're looking at today, is about reconciliation. And the counsel from Jesus is this, to his people, that's us. If you've been offended, you're to go to your brother or your sister and try to work that out between the two of you. Okay, so who goes? The one who has offended or the one who's been offended? The one who's been offended, right? So the one who's been hurt, the one who's been sinned against. That's the person whose responsibility it is to go to the offender. Now, we would like for it to be the other way around, wouldn't we? I want the guy who messed up against me, who hurt me, who said this about me, make him come to me and make this right. But Jesus said, that's not how it's going to work. If you've been offended, the recipient of offense, it's your job to go to that person. Why? Well, first of all, they may not even know. You may be harboring this unforgiveness, this bitterness towards somebody, and they've got no clue Right, until you unfriend them on Facebook that you're even upset. And Jesus says, go. And he says, now, if that doesn't work, don't stop there. Go grab a brother or sister in Christ who you trust, who's aware of the situation. Take them with you and try to work it out now with a mediator. And if that doesn't work, you bring it before the church. And if you keep reading on, this beautiful part about this passage is where Jesus talks about two or three gathering in his name. He will be in their midst. And see, that's the goal of all of this, is not that you would go rub something in somebody's face and make them pay for it, but Jesus wants his people to be what? In restored relationship with one another. Jesus wants to not just heal his relationship with us through what he did on the cross, he wants to heal our relationship with one another. Now, after that, we're going to step into the part of the conversation where Peter brings up a question about forgiveness, right? Because if reconciliation is going to happen between you and I, there's going to have to be some forgiveness, And so in verse 21, Peter comes up to Jesus. Let's start there. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So, Peter catches on quick. Oh, if, we're gonna, if I'm going to be reconciling people with people, then you're, gonna be, you're asking me to forgive, so how many times do I need to be expected to do this? Now, what's interesting is he picks seven, because in Jewish culture in this day and time, in order to be a person who is considered to be a forgiving person, you're expected to forgive three times, at least three times to capture the spirit of forgiveness. So actually what Peter's doing is he's saying, Jesus... I'm willing to go above and beyond what's normally expected in our culture. How about seven times, which is the number of perfection. It reflects who God is and his completeness. And so Peter's thinking, well, I'll just jump ahead. I'm willing to do this seven times. And potentially he was expecting Jesus to pat him on the back. Well, that's ambitious, Peter. That's well above what everybody else in our culture does. But then Jesus responds to him with what was called, or what we might call an idiom or a saying or some kind of a cultural cliche. He says, I'm not saying seven times, but how often? 77 or seven times seven, meaning what? Immeasurable, incalculable. I'm asking you to continue doing this without keeping a record of wrongs, without counting with hash marks how many times you've forgiven, Peter. And so then what happens from here is Jesus is going to slip into a parable to teach Peter, and while he's doing that, he's teaching us about forgiveness. So we're going to pick this up now in verse 23. Jesus says, 
Therefore, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So here's what's happening in the parable. A king has been letting his subjects go far too long in debt without paying. So he does an audit. I need to find out who owes me what. I've been letting this slide for far too long. I'm going to start calling people into account. I'm going to reconcile this debt. And so there was a servant who was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now this, to wrap your mind around it, a talent um, was worth about 20 years of average pay. So basically in this day and time, that's a career. You think, think of it that way. A career of work. Okay, so in today's time, if you're making $30,000 a year at, you know, kind of a, a minimum wage or an average salary, um, that's 20 of those. And now he said, how many talents? 10,000. So that would have been equivalent to about $6 billion that this servant owed. That's big time when you can think of it like that. Now, the reality is that a servant, somebody who would maybe be making minimum wage, could never go into that much debt, right? I mean, who, who would loan somebody that much money? How could he accrue this much debt? Well, what Jesus is doing is what's called hyperbole. He's exaggerating something to be beyond what is normal or rational to make a really significant point, right? Because he could have just said there was a guy who owed a talent. That's his career. That's his career earnings. He went into debt. He owed 20 years worth of salary. And we'd go, oh, okay, yeah, I could see somebody getting in bad shape financially and owing that much money. But Jesus, to blow up this picture, says, no, this guy owed 10,000 lifetimes of salary, $6 billion to the king. So verse 25, as you can imagine, since he could not pay. No way he was going to pay that back. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So in this culture and day and time, if you got in a financial position where you owed somebody more money than you could pay back, they had legal authority to have you prosecuted. And if proven guilty, you could be sold with your family into slavery and all that money would go to the person you owed debt to. This is normal operating procedure here. You can't pay? All right. Go get your wife and kids. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. We'll stop right there. I will pay you everything. Is there any way this guy could have paid everything? It's mathematically impossible that this guy could have paid his debt. Jesus wants us to see that. This guy is in an impossible situation. He doesn't want us to look at this guy and go, oh, what a great offer this guy is making. It's going to take him some time, but he's going to get it. Again, hyperbole. There's no way this guy could have fulfilled what he just told the king. I'm going to pay you back. Look at what happens. Out of pity for him. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, this started with an audit. How much do you owe? 
And what Jesus is teaching us about here is about how forgiveness works. And what Jesus wants us to see in this exaggerated number is he wants you and me to begin to fathom or imagine how much debt we owe God. Now, there are two factors in how much we owe God. One, our sinfulness. We have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. Now, there's not a mathematical equation for you to calculate how much sin you've committed. How many, just how deep, and how rebellious is your sin versus my sin. We've all sinned. We all fall short. But that's part of the equation. The second half of the equation is the infinite holiness of God. We haven't just sinned against another sinner. We've sinned against a God who doesn't sin. An infinitely holy God. And you and I trying to imagine the chasm, the amount of debt between what we've done and God's holiness is, listen to this, it's incalculable. Just like trying to calculate 20 or 10,000 talents 10,000 lifetimes of earnings. Jesus is saying, for your moral debt and my moral debt, in 10,000 lifetimes, you couldn't pay it back. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, what's beautiful about God in this portrait here is that when we ask him to forgive our incalculable moral debt, he responds to us by saying what? Yes. He's made a promise to us in the scriptures that he will forgive those who ask. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Doesn't say he'll take it into consideration, right? Doesn't say he'll interview to make sure you're sincere. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All debts are paid. Not a payment plan. All debts are paid. Now look at verse 10 in that same section of 1 John. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what essentially John is saying is God is a great forgiver of debts. But if he were to do an audit, every person in the room fails. Right? To say, I don't really need God's forgiveness for my sin is to say, God's a liar. We need it. Listen, we're the servant here. You're the servant. I'm the servant who owes 10,000 talents. And so what Jesus is doing before he answers Peter's question about how many times, he's saying, Peter, you're not going to ever get this until you begin to fathom how much God has forgiven you. Before we ever talk about forgiving one another, we have to understand how much God has forgiven us. God's forgiveness towards us is incalculable. Now, I want to stop for just a minute and talk about what forgiveness is. How would you define forgiveness? You don't, this is just think about it. How would you define forgiveness? If one of your kiddos came up to you, or somebody's kiddo came up to you and said, what's forgiveness? You're asking me to forgive, but what is it? I want you to think about that. 
forgiveness, think of it this way, is foregoing your right to hold somebody in debt to you any longer. Forgiveness is foregoing your right. It's not saying that you didn't have a right to be offended or have a right to be hurt, but it's saying I forego my right to hold this person in debt to me any longer. Isn't that clear in the parable, what the king did? No payment plan, no trial basis, you're forgiven. The king forewent his right. He couldn't come back a year from then and say, you know what, I changed my mind, bring me the money. He said, no, bring me the debt sheet. Watch this, paid in full, done. You no longer owe me what you owed me before. See, that's what forgiveness is. So now here comes the hard part that we were talking about earlier. Now God's going to call us to bend that out towards one another. Love God's forgiveness towards me, but it's hard for me to forgive you. So Jesus in the parable is going to help us out a little bit. Look at what he says next. But when the same servant went out, remember that's me and you, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Already this guy's hard attitude isn't in the right place. Okay, so Daenerys was about one day's wages. So he went out and found somebody who owed him about a hundred days worth of wages. That's very doable, isn't it? That's compared to 10,000 talents, this one now is not hyperbole. This guy could pay it off. Right? And so instead of saying, hey, can we work this out? What does he do? He goes up and starts choking him. Give me my money. Verse 29. So his fellow servant, almost word for word, we're going to get the same thing, fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will do what? Pay you. Now, Jesus is using word for word the same request for forgiveness so that you and I will see, right, the ridiculousness between the servant who received forgiveness and his lack of desire to extend that forgiveness to somebody else. The second servant asked for the same thing that the first servant asked for. The only difference is what? Their amount of debt. One owed 100 days wages, one owed 10,000 lifetimes worth of wages. And the one who owed more debt is not willing to forgive the one who only owed 100 days wages. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He refused to forego the debt that this guy owed him. Now, let's get this clear. Jesus is not minimizing the pain and the hurt that we feel when somebody sins against us. That's not why he's using a low number here. When somebody sins against you, it's painful. And the more that person means to you, oftentimes the more painful it is, right? My friend betrays me, it's painful. I trusted him, I trusted her. My my sibling betrays me, Right, it, it can go even deeper because I care about that person more. One of my parents betrays me. My spouse betrays me. Now I'm cut deep. 
When somebody sins against you, it hurts, doesn't it? It's painful. Jesus isn't minimizing that pain. What he's doing, he's maximizing our ability to see how much debt we've been in and the pain that we've caused towards God. If 100 denarii hurts, imagine 10,000 talents. You follow me? If the betrayal of a friend hurts, imagine how betrayal feels from God's perspective. It hurts. Jesus is not minimizing your hurt. He's helping us see this this incredibly large debt we owe and, and how we have hurt the heart of our infinitely holy God and Father of the universe. He's putting things into perspective for us, isn't he? What Jesus is doing here is he's showing that the sin that somebody's committed against you is a drop in the bucket compared to the sin you've committed against God. It's a real drop. It really hurt, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to the waterfall of sin that came crashing down on our Savior on the cross. The weight and the betrayal, it was more than just Judas betraying him. I was betraying him. You were betraying him. We were sinning against him. And he felt the weight of that hurt and that pain and that agony and that betrayal on the cross. So... Oftentimes, God calls us to forgive, and we don't want to. And I will sometimes, and maybe even oftentimes hear somebody say, I just don't know how to forgive. Have you ever had, thought that? I just don't know how to forgive this person. I know I'm supposed to. I just don't know how to. You know what I think the mistake we make is that we're waiting on God to teach us how to forgive, and we fail to realize he's already taught us. So what we don't need is another lesson on forgiveness. What we need is we need to stop and acknowledge how much we've been forgiven. Because until we do that, a 10-step process to forgiveness is never going to work. Right? That's the equation here. The first servant had been forgiven much. He was therefore expected to forgive. Our natural human responses, whenever we sense God calling us to forgive, I forgave them, but then they did it again. Or, I would forgive them, but I don't want to be hurt again. Here's what I want to ask you and I to think about. What if God operated that way? You know what? I would forgive you, but I don't think you're done messing up yet. You know what? I would forgive you, Jason, but last time hurt really bad, and I've already forgiven you twice. You know what? I'm just going to set some boundaries between you and I. I'm not going to let you hurt me again, so therefore I'm just not going to forgive you. Can you imagine if God operated that way towards us? But isn't that how we operate towards one another in forgiveness? Strings attached, contingent upon, prove yourself to me. Listen, forgiveness is risky. Ask Jesus. It is. It's hard. It's why God calls us to walk by faith. Do you know that 
whoever has sinned against you is actually more responsible to God than they are you? I'll give you one biblical example. Um, I think probably the most obvious example is David and Bathsheba. You remember that story? David committed adultery, got a lady pregnant. Then to cover it all up, right, rather than owning his mistake and trying to make things right, what did he do? He, he had her husband killed to cover it up. Uriah. Imagine that story from Uriah's parents' perspective once they figured out what David had done. You took our daughter-in-law, got her pregnant, and then to cover it up, you killed our son? David sinned against Uriah's parents, didn't he? But if you go to Psalm 51 where David's crying out in repentance, you know what? He doesn't mention Uriah's parents at all. He says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Why? Because in that moment, David realized in his sin against Uriah, Bathsheba, their family, his sin against God was immeasurable in that moment. He wasn't fearful of what Uriah's parents were going to do to him. He was fearful of what an infinitely holy God was going to do to him. See, our sin against one another is a drop in the bucket. What Jesus calls us to do in forgiving is hard, but compared to what he's done for us, again, it's a drop in the bucket. This is why God comes down so hard on this guy in the parable. Look at what he does. Verse 31, when, this, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. That was a death sentence, wasn't it? So also my, he- my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now let's back up. Remember, Jesus is teaching Peter about forgiveness. Peter's question, well, Jesus, how about I go above and beyond and I just do this seven times? Rather than a pat on the back, Jesus teaches him this parable. And Jesus is saying to Peter and he's saying to you and to me, your sin against God is incalculable. There's, and there's no way for you to calculate it, and there's no way for you to pay it back. 20 lifetimes of moral living would not, no, excuse me, 10,000 lifetimes of moral living will not pay back the debt you owe God. And so in our struggle against, for, for, in our struggle to forgive one another, really the problem starts where? Right here. I've got to see how much I owe God. Maybe the problem isn't what this person has or hasn't done for me. Maybe the problem is I haven't stopped to acknowledge what I've done against God. Maybe I haven't stopped to do what King David has done and say, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. We're talking about repentance. We're talking about naming our sin. Right? So there's two ways to confess sin. One is God, I've really been selfish this week. Please forgive me. That's one way. That's the generic version. Let me give you the real repentance version. God, I've, I've been selfish this week. I've been selfish in my time. I've been selfish in my words. I spoke out in anger against my children. I yelled at my son. 
I was manipulative and vindictive towards my wife? Naming it. Because see, when we name it, right, we begin to feel the weight of it. Now it's not this generic God talk confession. It's no, God, I'm acknowledging the weight of my sin and the debt I have accrued against your holiness, and it's real, and I need you to forgive me of that. And God's mercy and grace will pour out on you nonstop, ever flowing, unconditional, no strings attached, debt forgiven. And God says, now as my servant, as my child, as my my son, my daughter, go forgive your brothers and sisters the same way I forgive you. Begins to put things in perspective, doesn't it? We're going to do something that we did last week. We don't do this often here at Solid Rock. We're going to recite the Lord's Prayer together again today. You guys did so good last week. I just want to hear you do it again. Uh, We may do it again next week too. Um, But I think it's so important in the midst of looking at this passage of Scripture for us to just to say it out loud, to pray it together out loud and understand like we talked about last week, this is not JV prayer. This is varsity level prayer when we pray these words together. All right, you ready? Let this be our prayer as a church. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We'll come back next week and we'll pick up that last phrase. As we get ready to shift towards communion, last month we talked about from uh, the scriptures from 1 Corinthians how God calls his followers to check their hearts before taking communion. And so really we're going to follow up on that again this week. You know, Jesus makes a statement in, in the Gospel of Matthew and when he talks about anger towards one another and reconciliation, he said, you know what? If you bring a gift to God's altar, a gift of worship, and, and before you set it down, you realize that you've got, you're holding an offense towards somebody, he says, leave your gift there, go be reconciled to your brother or sister first, and then come back and offer your gift of worship. Now read that, what that tells me as a Christian, that in my peripheral, I should always be evaluating my relationships with others. Any act of worship, whether it's a song we sing, or it's communion, right? Whatever our offering of worship to God is, I should always be checking my heart to make sure my relationships around me are reconciled. And so communion is no different. As we approach communion really month in, month out, I think as a church we should check our hearts. This is a great time to reevaluate what God has done for us and how what he's done for us should be bent out towards one another. And maybe today God would bring to mind a a, a relationship that's not reconciled and and maybe the problem is that you haven't forgiven and so maybe before maybe instead of taking communion today you just spend time praying for that person and then when you leave church today you go home and set up some time with them set up a breakfast a coffee a lunch a dinner shoot a text over hey i know it's been a while i know last time we spoke things weren't going well but can we talk again not with the purpose of getting them to see your way Right, But what, for what purpose? To reconcile and to extend forgiveness freely where it's needed. 
Um, let me just address this kind of awkward thing that happens sometimes. Um, so, sometimes after a communion Sunday, somebody will email me or come up to me and say, hey, you may have noticed I didn't take communion on Sunday. I want to tell you why. And then they'll pour their heart out and share with me, which I'm so honored that they share those things with me. Like, hey, I'm, my wife and I are fighting, and I just didn't feel right taking communion, or I've got this sin struggle in my life, and I really feel like I want to work this out with God before I take communion. Like, I'm, I love that, because it tells me you're taking it seriously, and you're checking your heart. But what I want you to hear me say, listen, church, I don't stand up here and take role in who takes communion. I just want you to know that. Whether you take communion or not is between you and God. Okay? I'm never up here wondering, mm, why isn't she coming up here? That's, that's between you and God. And so today, if that's you, and you're like, hey, I just, I think I need to refrain from communion, and I need to work on this relationship with my brother and sister, listen, please do that with no concern about what myself or any other elders are going to be thinking about you. I believe that's part of our walk as Christians, and that's part of our worship, to do what? To say, you know what, before I bring this gift to the altar, I'm going to go get this right, and then I'm going to come back. So with that being said, um, I want to go ahead and just get our hearts ready for worship um, through communion, um, to, just to kind of get us going there. Um, communion for us as a church, um, you don't have to be a member of the church to take communion with us, um, but we do believe that um, communion is for all who've trusted in Christ as their Savior, and that's you. We invite you to take communion with us this morning. Um, and so uh, we're going to take some time just to get our hearts right, to pray together, um, and then we'll take communion together in just a moment. So just to lead us in that time, I'm going to ask one of our elders, Billy Warren, um, if you would come up. Billy, lead us in a time of prayer um, and preparing our hearts for communion.